Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, an update on the coronavirus and how it is affecting you. The British Columbia Premier has conceded defeat in his legal battle against the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Does this mean it's a go? And NORAD, the system that protects the North, is outdated. What do we need to do to fix that? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, the coronavirus obviously uh, making lots of headlines still and uh, trying as hard as we can to get some uh, information out. And and don't forget the uh, Ontario and Canadian governments both have uh, websites that address all of this. And it's just a simple search to find uh, uh, coronavirus and such and what the latest information is from government. And they are doing uh, their best to try to keep everybody up to date on exactly what is going on. Here's a report right now. We're going to play for you a quickie on, from uh, Brianna Carnegie. As of this morning, there has been 67 cases tested for novel coronavirus in Ontario. 38 are negative, 27 are pending results. Dr. Barbara Yaffe, Associate Chief Medical Officer of Health, says of Ontario's two confirmed cases, the man remains in hospital in stable condition. His wife is still under self-isolation at home and is feeling well. Canada's third case is in B.C. In all, the system is working. People are receiving and hearing the information about this novel coronavirus and seeking direction from their healthcare providers. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Donald Vinn, Director of Infectious Disease Susceptibility Program, Associate Professor, Department of Medical Microbiology and Human Genetics at McGill University, and is on the line now. Donald, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for inviting me. One question I, I'm not sure we've all heard the answer uh, to, and maybe it's too early to tell, but how dangerous is this virus to those who get it? Uh, again, is it like very similar to a flu in the sense that it depends on who that is? Are people, is it a fatal disease or is it something that you know, over time in the proper process uh, uh, can be contained, can be, can be cured? Well, I think that's actually an excellent question that hasn't been really well addressed. Um, If we look at the current statistics that we see, the data suggests that over 6,000 individuals have been infected, positively confirmed, and the mortality rate is about 2 to 2.5%. So that's not not, uh, insignificant. Those Those are important individuals, but the rate is quite low. So If we look at uh, coronaviruses in general, coronaviruses often cause a mild cold. There are other respiratory viruses that are circulating, uh, usually at around the same time as coronaviruses, like flu and other viruses. And flu particularly can can cause much more uh, illness. It can cause people to be much more sick, and it has higher mortality rates. Um, So when we look at the grand scheme of things, the coronavirus has actually two features that that people are, are, are sort of conflating. One is its spread, which seems to be spreading quite quickly, doubling the number of people every week or so. But distinct from spread is its mortality. The mortality rate is still around 2 to 2.5%. So the common flu, and I don't want to say common, but the flu virus that we see going around every year, which obviously some are uh, taking vaccination for and such, that is as dangerous or more dangerous than what we're finding this to be at this point. 
That's right. So the flu virus is notoriously dangerous every year. And, uh, you know, there are people who are particularly at risk. So the very young, the very old, and people who have compromised immune systems. For this coronavirus, what it seems to be is that a, a large proportion, not exclusively, but a large proportion of people in China who have uh, um, died from this infection tend to be elderly. Um, of course, there's, there, that's not 100%, but that's a large proportion of them. Does that imply uh, that they, were, they had other uh, illnesses that made them more at risk for this infection or more unable to handle this infection? Th th that's not clear. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it, it, is a, it is a virus that, like any other respiratory virus, in the right setting of frail individuals, can be fatal. And that is very similar with the common flu uh, in the sense that if, if you have other medical issues, what have you, or frail, as you put it, um, obviously you're more susceptible, uh, susceptible to, to passing from this. So is that the same with this? Are we finding healthy people who are uh, normally in, in, in good physical health that have come down with this and then would pass from this? Or is it, again, like you suggested, those that are on the fringes that would normally have a, a difficult time with any flu? So that's that's a difficult question to answer at this point because we don't have all the data. What we're what we're what we're worried about is is this similar to what we saw with SARS, where there were you know higher than expected rates of of mortality of people dying from this coronavirus in in the absence of any obvious reasons. So so that's what. You know, that's what everyone's having a flashback to. But currently what we see is that there's a mortality rate of about 2 to 2.5%. Two it's, it's, it's primarily in the elderly. Are these, pe are these elderly uh, people who have other illnesses, that, that's the reason why? It, it's hard to know. But that, if we look at 2.5% mortality rate, that means that about 97% of people are walking around mm. confirmed with this infection who are not severely ill. So right? those that and, were – sorry, go ahead. And uh, what I was just going to say is that you, if you have people with a respiratory virus and they're not severely ill, well, that's, that's a cold. Really. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so those that may be quarantined now, whether it's here or over, over in China, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that their situation is, is dire. It's for them, it's the flu similar to any other flu, and the path to recovery is pretty much the same. Is that accurate? Well, I, I do have to say that the, the, the flu virus and this coronavirus are actually not the same type of virus. Right. Yes, they both cause respiratory infections, but they, they actually behave quite differently. But th to answer your point, I mean, if you are in quarantine, that doesn't actually mean that you are infected or that you ha uh, if you are infected, it doesn't mean you necessarily have symptoms. Right. It is essentially uh, sort of an isolation uh, exercise to prevent, uh, you know, if in the event that you may be infected or spreading the infection, that you do not spread it beyond, you know, four walls. But I guess my point that I guess I'm making here is if you end up getting this coronavirus, it doesn't mean that you're going to die. Well, that's what 97% of the data so far shows. <laughs> that's good news. Uh, so is it the spread of this that is most concerning? Why is there such concern over this, considering the mortality well, rates are still relatively low? Yeah, well, I think that there's it's a complex question because there's multiple levels. There's from a, there's a medical perspective and there's a social perspective. From a medical perspective, it, what's what's unusual is that this is a coronavirus that's that, that that's that seems to be new, right? So coronaviruses are actually not new in general. That we've known that they cause the common cold forever. What what seems to be a little bit unusual is this one uh, seems to be occurring in a cluster, so a large number of cases in a short period of time. Um, 
with a spread that seems to be quite quick for which, uh, you know, while there are, we're not sure if we have the right test for it and we, we you know, we're not sure where it's coming from or, or how, how quickly it's going to spread and, and, and we don't have a lot of uh, data yet. So there's, a, so there's a medical perspective of the unknown. There's also the social perspective of, well, you know, uh, there are rumors that it came out of animals and so if it's crossing species, it may be really, really bad like we see in the Hollywood movies. But the reality is that there are a lot of viruses that have been, that have been spread quite quickly um, over the last few years, and, and, you know, people seem to be less concerned. And, and a nice example of that would be the measles virus, right? In fact, there, there are people who haven't gotten their measles vaccinations. There have been ex- outbreaks and epidemics, in fact, all across the world uh, from, from measles exposure, and that's even more contagious and more fatal, so that you know, so on the grand scheme of things, um, you know, we have to look at the at, at at all the different kinds of infections and whether or not this merits the the fear that 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 that, uh, that we're seeing. How similar or or not is this to SARS? Well, it's the same family of virus, so that's that that that's clear. Mm-hmm. Um, however, SARS um, seems to have been a particular strain that was new at the time that 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 actually seemed to be associated with high higher rates of mortality than usual in people who didn't have an obvious reason to to ha- to, to to you know suffer uh, from, from from the viral infection so far um you know it, it, it's too early to tell how how similar they are to SARS to the, the virus, this virus right. compared to SARS um, you you were talking about it being related to animals and such. We have heard that they've closed down wild food markets and such. Can this be traced back to the food chain? Does does China need to do more to keep its food chain safe? So, uh, in, so I think we need to address a few a few rumors, right? So the coronaviruses, the natural biology of these viruses is that they sit in bats. And when you have a bat, you don't have a bat. You have a colony of bats are hundreds, yeah. of thousands. Of, mm. So there are huge numbers of bats. And each one of those bats, they may have their own coronavirus or even a, a combination of coronaviruses. So they all do their own mixing within each of those bats, and that's how they spread. And, and you get this mix and match, and that's how once in a while you get this new strain coming out. Most of the time, the, st- the new strains that come out are actually weak or unable to, to, to reproduce. But so once in a while, you get one that breaks out. But in the animal food chain, you know, animals eat other animals, that kind of stuff. Um, so... I'm not sure we, we know exactly where it's coming. We, we know it can be very traced back probably to somewhere on bats. But but these viruses can infect mammals. They can infect birds. Um, I'm not sure necessarily that, um, uh, the, that, 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 that a particular seafood market, while it can be epidemiologically traced back to, 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 to being a common uh, area where a lot of the originally infected people were, were sort of, you know, frequenting, may not necessarily be um, that. In fact, that's what we know, for example, from the SARS outbreak, right? The SARS outbreak, people were, were, were blaming the way, uh, you know, Chinese people handled cats and food markets. But it, but in fact, um, it, it's, do we it's know how? Do we know the? That. Do we know the origin of SARS? How that did started? How that did start? Well, that seems to actually have been brought into the markets by um, uh, by by certain types of animals uh, that were brought to market. But it, it wasn't because you know uh, some 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 awkward social behavior between between civet cats and humans. It was um, it was. 
again, originated from bats. It seems to have propagated through uh, some different, what we call hosts. One of them involved uh, uh, this kind of cat called the civet cat Mm -hmm. that uh, then infected other animals. Um, So was that happening here? Perhaps. Uh, Does it have to do with uh, live markets? Uh, Perhaps. So we don't know. So do we know or we don't know how it jumps from uh, uh, the civet cat or bats or two into humans? Is it through Uh, is it through consumption? Is it through uh, handling? Do we know? Uh, so so um, it, well, it, it actually depends a little bit on, uh, on, some, of, on some of the strains of the, of the virus. So some of the viruses, for example, can infect and cause uh, illness in animals like pigs, for example. Um, and so there, there are some animals that can, there are some viruses that can infect what we call an intermediate host that then uh, transmits it to humans. Uh, in the process, because this is a virus that mutates quite rapidly, um, it, it's possible that in the transmission process, it picks up new mutations mm. that allows it to do things that it wouldn't normally have done, like jump, like being able to spread from human to human. So do, does China do, need to do more to, to keep its food chain clean? I mean, if that's, if that's the origin. Yeah, I, I would say yes and no in the sense that, yes, China does, but then again, we all do. Right. I mean, we 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 live in a global food chain. Yeah. Um, You know, and Canada, um, you know, Canada has its fair share of foodborne illnesses, which is monitored quite aggressively by the Canadian Food and Inspection Agency. But every once in a while there, you know, there are there are outbreaks. Um, and it's not, and as we know, our, the foods, certain foods that come from the United States are also infecting Canadians. So I, I do. Yeah, but certainly, Canada, certainly in no way like this. Well, in fact, some of the some of the food board outbreaks that have, that have come from the U.S., for example, uh, have actually had more fatality in North America than the coronavirus. So, so you, you know, as a global recommendation, there, there has to be improvements in food handling. Are we overreacting to this virus? I mean, I think time will tell, but the data so far suggests that. Um, uh, you know, for every 100 people who are infected, only two will, uh, will, will, will perish. And I don't say only two very, you know, lackadaisically, though. Those are, mm-hmm. those are important. But, but uh, you know, that does mean that it's, it's not uh, a type of infection where as soon as you get it, it's all, it, you know there's a strong chance of fatality, like let's say like with Ebola, for example. Mm. Um, so, so I think we have, to, we have to temper our concerns. Dr. Donald Vinn has been with us, Director, Infectious Disease Susceptibility Program, uh, Department of Microbiology and Human Genetics, McGill University. Donald, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. So let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Group School of Business, uh, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. What are your What are your thoughts on the chances <laughs> of this actually being built? Because I've had so many people on the show say it doesn't matter what happens here. It's death by delay, death by delay. Yes. So I hate to tell you this, but I think the clip you just played is actually him not speaking about the Trans Mountain, but something called Coastal Gaslink. 
Mr. Horgan has this problem. There are two pipelines that are trying to be built in British Columbia. There's a nat- liquefied natural gas pipeline mm-hmm. that's going to go from basically Dawson City to Kitimat, and it's going to go through a number of indigenous uh, areas. Twenty different indigenous groups have said yes to it, uh, and, and there's one group of people still protesting it. I think you pronounce it the Wet Suetan people. Uh, their band council has approved it, but the hereditary people say, you didn't talk to us, we still need to be solved. And as he was conceding defeat on Trans Mountain, he was trying to use that defeat to put pressure on the Wet Suetan to get on board with the Coastal Gas Link. Now, let's talk about his defeat on Trans Mountain. Um, the pr- province's Supreme Court ruled that B.C. could not control what was going through the pipeline. That's how they thought they were going to, uh, if you will, emasculate the pipeline. Sure, go ahead and build it, but you can't ship what you want to ship through it because we're going to control that. The B.C. Supreme Court said no. They then appealed it to the Canadian Supreme Court, and last week the Canadian Supreme Court ruled no, we're not going to hear it. This is totally within the federal government's purview. You haven't got a case. So he's now resigned himself to seeing Trans Mountain built, but he was hoping in agreeing to that that he could maybe put some pressure on the Wet'suwet'ens to let the Coastal Gas Link, the one that he wants to be built, along with the one he doesn't want to be built. If you've got the Trans Mountain, uh, which is taking Alberta Energy out to the coast, if that is, is, is going through, then why would you not want or approve a natural gas pipeline? Well, that's, I think that's part of his point here. Now, uh, in terms of getting the, the Trans Mountain built, I've always thought it was going to happen at some point. I just wasn't sure what that point would be. And believe it or not, Scott, now now listen carefully here, I think we're down to the very last roadblock. Mm. There's still one out there, and that is that there are some uh, Native groups and some environmentalists who are appealing the consultation process that was held uh, from early to, or from the middle of 2018 to the middle of 2019. Uh, This is what actually happened the last time. This was the last big delay. The courts ruled that you didn't properly consult with people. So the federal government hired Frank Iacobucci, who's a retired Supreme Court justice, to hold the hearings. And they said, you take as long as you need, but do them right, because we want this to move forward. He finished his hearings early last year, or excuse me, in the middle of last year. That led the federal government in, I think it was October, to reapprove Trans Mountain. But the minute they did that, some of these groups then put another court challenge forward, say, no, no, he didn't do it right. The courts, to their credit, threw out half of the claims, saying you're rehashing things that have nothing to do with the consultation process. But there is still to be one last hearing. Did Mr. Iacobucci get this correct? I think he did, and I think their claims are going to be found to not to have merit. And once that is clear, Scott, mark my word, that pipeline is going to get built, especially now that Mr. Horgan has tucked his tail between his legs. Uh, what about timeline? Any idea? Timeline, well, from start to finish, it'll probably take the better part of three years. What uh, about even the starting? Although we know there are, it is uh, it partial uh, start, I guess, in, in, in areas around Alberta, not so much B.C. So is it officially started or yes. not? Yes, so the the early stuff in Alberta, everyone was fine with all that, so it's being constructed. Pipe has actually been ordered and is stockpiled, so the minute they get the go, they can do this. I, I think you're going to hear that the Trans Mountain will be underway in British Columbia probably by the middle of this year with a tentative completion date of probably around 2022. Uh, now, what Justin Trudeau wants to do is 
he wa- he wants that so he can send a signal to Alberta and Saskatchewan. I'm hearing you. Look, I'm able to do something here. And then the other thing is, once it starts getting constructed, the federal government's going to look for a buyer because for the moment, Trans Mountain Pipeline is owned by you and I. It's owned by the government of Canada. They bought it from private interest to try to make sure it went through. If they can get those pipes starting to be put together, then I think it's very saleable again on the market, and I'm sure a private sector interest will come back. All of that should happen in the latter half of this year and into 2021. Uh, with uh, the delays that you, you talked about still on the horizon in regard to the Indigenous community, there's also, uh, we're, we're starting to hear more and more of the story about how they can this community can benefit from this and possibly even uh, participate in the ownership of this. Your thoughts on that? Right. Well, as, as again, as your clip talked about, now that was specifically in terms of this uh, gas link pipeline, but what uh, many indigenous groups have begun to figure out is, well, wait a minute here, you know, we're looking for ways to become more prosperous ourselves. Uh, there's poverty, that we need jobs. Can we participate in this? And the answer has been a resounding yes. Uh, I don't want to call this a divide and conquer strategy, but as more and more indigenous groups say, well, you know, if we can get something out of this, maybe it's not as evil as it was. A number of them have withdrawn. So even in that last court case I was talking about, there were originally uh, two environmental groups and seven First Nations groups that were appealing. Two of those have since dropped out shortly after they signed an agreement to participate in the benefits of the pipeline. And I am sure the people who work for the Trans Mountain Corporation are busy talking to those other indigenous groups. That may, we may never actually even see this court case if they sign on for the benefits. And that's, I think, another way to get people to understand we're not just running roughshod over your land here. This Trans Mountain, remember, it's a twinning of a pipeline. There is an existing pipeline already there. Why don't we twin there? And by the way, why don't you help benefit from it? I think that argument is now starting to resonate, but it took a while for it to do so. Is that what it is? It just takes time to get from layer to layer within the indigenous community? Because we've heard for years that that everyone along the route, especially with the Trans Mountain, had already been on board. So yeah. how does the government handle when the opposite side is split like that? Yeah. Well, uh, and I, Scott, first, full confession here, I am not an indigenous person. I am not from the First Nations. As an observer of this, as a business observer of this, a challenge for any government, whether it's provincial or federal or even a municipal government, is who do you speak to? If you can think of the situation down in Caledonia, uh, the governments were talking to the elected band council. They said, those are your representatives. We're talking to them, and they've agreed to X or Y or Z, whatever it happens to be. And then another group come forward and say, we do not recognize their right to lead us. We are the indigenous chiefs. We are the clan mothers. You haven't spoken to us. You need to talk to us instead. And that is some of the frustration here. If you could have a clearinghouse, in other words, if there's one person I could speak to and, and solve meet their needs as, as a representative of the group, it's so easy. But what it seems is as soon as you get these three groups, three more groups seem to materialize, and they have needs and wants, and they have issues. And that's why some of these projects seem to bog down. But I think, I think, in the case of Trans Mountain and in the case of British Columbia, we are nearing the finish line. I don't think there are any new people popping up 
can we take the last few, get them on board? And that's why I'm very hopeful you'll see this project being constructed in British Columbia before the end of this year. So how does that change now that this it looks like it's going through and, and everything uh, on the approval process is moving forward? How does this change the pipeline discussion? Uh, many have said, uh, I've heard say that uh, the appetite the uh, is just not there for companies to come in and invest in this sector. Or does the fact that this has been cleared, does this signal that... Uh, the government's open to other projects, depending on. Yeah. So uh, two, two different answers to that question. So on this pipeline specifically, once you've got everything underway, I think it's very saleable. In other words, somebody who's got money will say, well, now I don't have to do any more work. It's just that I didn't want to have to nursemaid this through the morass of lawsuits and, and regulations, what have you. But now that pipe is going to getting connected and it's happening, yeah, I might be ready to come along and buy it. To your bigger question about investment in general, I don't think it answers that question. What are the policies in Alberta? What are the policies in Saskatchewan? What does Canada want to do with the oil and gas industry? And as you can imagine, um, our, our prime minister sends a bit of a mixed message here. On one hand, he wants to help regional economic development in Saskatchewan and Alberta, and he does see that oil, whether we use it for fuel or we use it as a feedstock for plastics, does have a long-term viability. Yet at the same time, Canada is among the worst uh, polluters of carbon out there uh, on a per capita basis. We, we do more. We issue more carbon to the environment on a per capita basis than does the United States or China. And so he feels he's got to demonstrate on the world stage that we're serious about carbon reduction and climate change. So he's trying to find that delicate balancing point. I don't want to kill the industry. I want there to be healthy oil and gas development. I want to see investment. But I also need it to be a clean investment and low-carbon investment. And those, those are the challenges he's going to have, or frankly, any government would have going forward over the next 20 years. It's not an either-or. It's how can I get the best of both. Will we see protests as construction continues or begins? Well, take that uh, gas link pipeline that's going. There's a great example of a pipeline. So they've started construction at both ends, and they're trying to work towards the middle. But there's a group in the middle, this wet Sowetan group, who have blockaded, who said you can't have any trucks on our property, and they've you know, chained themselves. You might remember that protest on the uh, Keystone XL pipeline in, mm-hmm. in uh, I think it was South Dakota or North Dakota a couple years ago. It's very similar to that. For the moment, they said, well, that's okay. We don't need to build that section at the moment. We can work around you. But at some point, when everything else is done, they are going to have to build that section. And, and that's the worry. Again, if you're in government, how do you clear those protesters away in a peaceful way? You don't want to have any assaults or any, any you know, heaven forbid there's even a death. You don't want anything like that. Uh, how, how do you do that? And so I think you'll see a little of that with the Trans Mountain, but that will be based on individuals, not formalized groups, but individuals who still don't like, I don't like what the Supreme Court said, I don't like what other people said, I'm going to, I'm going to chain myself to this tree, or I'm going to chain myself to this truck, and you can't move it. But we'll see some of those, because on this issue, environmentalists even are split as to what the advantages and disadvantages are. I can't let you go, Marvin, without asking you a business perspective of the coronavirus, what a sort of pandemic like this means to businesses around the world. Right. Well, it all depends, Scott, where this is going. So SARS in 2002-03, we had 800 deaths and 8,000 cases. At this point, we have 7,700 cases, but 170 deaths. Early going says coronavirus is more contagious than SARS, 
but less lethal than SARS. Mm -hmm. When SARS went through, it cost the economy $40 billion. Of that, about $30 billion was in China, but $10 billion was in Canada because we had, if you will, a second epicenter of that epidemic based in Toronto. Now, so far, most of the coronavirus cases are in China or come from people who came from an area of China. In other words, I was there on a holiday or I was there on business and I brought it back with me. We seem to be containing it well here. But the question is, have we got it contained? And if this were to spread to the point that we get 10,000 cases or 20,000 or 100,000 cases, this could be like the flu of 1912, where eventually millions of people died. At that situation, we could go back into a recession this year. That's how big this could be. But I am hopeful that the medical people can get this thing contained sooner rather than later. One last note on this, even though if it doesn't happen in Canada, there are Canadian companies exposed. You probably know that Air Canada has now announced that they're canceling all flights to China from Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, effective for the entire month of February. That's 33 flights a week. Air Canada stock is down 7%. IMAX, the movie theater company, 600 theaters in China. They're all shuttered. The Mm. the Chinese government announced no movie theaters until we get this under control. Uh, Tim Hortons is expanding in China. Canada Goose is in China. Magna employs 15,000 people in Wabei province, which is the province around Wuhan. They've tried to shut down. Google has shut down temporarily. As long as it's temporary, one week, two weeks, three weeks, we can bounce back from this very quickly. But that requires this thing to get contained, and it's hard to know where we are in containment at this moment. Uh, Does China need uh, to do more to prevent this, Uh, especially if it's a food chain issue? Do they need to do more to protect their food chain? So what I'm going to say to you is that's a great question once we get this under control. For the moment, we've got to stop the spread and get it under control. And then... And then, yes, do the diagnostics. How did this start in the first place, and what can we do to, to prevent this? Now, there's lots of, of rumors out there on the Internet that, I don't know, somebody was eating bat soup or something like this, and it was, came from the bats. Well, you know, clearly if it's something like that, maybe the government needs to, to take effect. But if it, it just is a permutation, a, a random freakish thing, I don't know what you can do about it. But there's time for do, diagnosis of that once we get it under control. At this moment, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Uh, One more before we let you go. 5G, uh, Boris Johnson opening the door ever so slightly for 5G in the UK for Huawei. Your thoughts? Well, it's more than ever so slightly. What he has basically said is Huawei can participate in 5G any place that we don't have a security issue. So, no, you can't do the government buildings, but you can do it other ways. 5G is faster than 4G, 100 times faster, but it's also the kind of thing we need if we're going to have autonomous driving vehicles who can speak to each other and speak to other kinds of things out there. The number of cells we have to build uh, we have to go up by a factor of at least 10. So you, you can imagine that we, have, we only have 10% of the cells we need today. We need 90% more. To take a Huawei out of the equation altogether, it seems like that's not the smartest thing in the world. Huawei is the largest technology firm out there. Now, the United States asked its allies to not use Huawei, and both Australia and New Zealand have outright banned them. But with Boris Johnson saying, well, I I don't think we have to ban them. We just have to make sure they're not in these mission-critical or highly secure areas. It's going to open a door for Justin Trudeau. Now, Justin has two problems. He's got Madam Mung. She's the CFO of Huawei, and we've got to finish her extradition hearing. And he's already kind of in China's bad books. I think Justin is going to follow Boris Johnson, but I don't think we're going to hear that until probably the end of March or early April 
when we make those announcements, and also Madam Mung's extradition hearing is finished, we know what fallback fallout we're going to get from there. So I think it does open the door. And by the way, if those countries go, France, Germany, Italy, some of them have not made their announcements on 5G. I, I just don't see how you don't have Huawei as part of the equation if you're interested in keeping your costs low. Can you keep them out of the core? Is that possible, do you think? Well, let me try it the other way around. As we have deployed 4G out there, Huawei has been involved. And as far as we know here in Canada, there have been no security breaches. Huawei itself actually says we, we, don't, we don't break security. Well, that's not what we do here. Now, the problem is there is a law in China that if the Chinese government goes to a Chinese firm and says, we need data, you need to give it to us. That's yeah. the law in China. Mm-hmm. But that's not been tested with Huawei at this point. I don't know. We want to be you know, basing ourselves fully on that. But why would the Chinese government want to know your cell phone history or my cell phone history? That's why I think Boris Johnson's done what he's done. If they want to know what the government's doing, that's a whole other situation. So I, I, this may be a bit of an irrational fear, and it may be, again, Donald Trump and his posturing with China to try to hurt them. He even changes his mind. He, he's actually approved Huawei participating in the United States until the end of next month as part of his uh, you know, appeasement of the Chinese government. He could even change his mind, and then what does that mean? So hmm. I think we need to strike an independent path, but one that we can justify to the public at large. Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thank you so much. Glad to be here. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, NORAD. Do you know what that is? Uh, North American Air Defense. You know what? I may even need some help with that. Many of us know of NORAD if we have kids, and on Christmas Eve, they're following uh, the NORAD Santa Claus trail (laughs) around the world. But obviously something that started uh, back way uh, in the, uh, during the times of the Cold War uh, to protect our far north. To talk more about all of this and whether it is, there's some questions, whether it is uh, doing the job that it is uh, needed to be done in 2020 or if the system is outdated. Let's bring in David Harris and Cygnus Strategic Group. He's a terrorism expert and with us now. David, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. A pleasure, Scott, as always. So first, tell us what the NORAD system is all about, uh, how it was devised. Yes, this is the North American Aerospace Defense Command. In the old days, the 1950s, when it first got underway during the absolute height of the Cold War, it was simply the North American Air Defense Command. It's a joint command that is run jointly by Canada and uh, the United States. And uh, it's, it's been responsible traditionally, and especially going back to earlier days, for identifying potential enemy aircraft or missiles approaching North American airspace. And one of the most typical anticipated approach routes uh, would have found uh, these aircraft or missiles moving over the uh, Arctic. Uh, then over Canada and ultimately to strike Canadian and U.S. targets. And all of this in the context, needless to say, of uh, a nuclear frontal aviation or missile uh, weaponry situation uh, under the control of the Soviets. So things have evolved over the years. And for many years, um, the NORAD system, with its dew line, as it was called... Yeah, I remember that. The dew line. That's right. Yeah. The good old days. The system of 
radar and other sensor-based uh, equipment that would help with the task of finding these aircraft and missiles uh, as early on in their flights toward us as possible with a view to now here it depended on the doctrine of the time that the allies were following uh, whether to shoot down or try to shoot down these things or simply um, aim at uh, launching our own uh, allied nuclear weapons because that figured in the whole deterrence system that for many years has driven uh, nuclear security internationally so that everybody knew in other words that if they were to ever get into the business of using nuclear weapons against the opposite block or power block then they would get nuclear weapons in return and the theory was again that that would deter the enemy from initiating a strike with nuclear weapons and therefore bring what became known as crisis stability into uh, the situation so that whenever there'd be a crisis people would not be inclined to reach for the nuclear trigger. Uh, the problem has been, though, that the uh, due line and then, of course, the more modern iterations of the uh, early warning system have, has not kept up with technology. And for many years after uh, the normal commercial world was no longer using old uh, tubes, vacuum tubes, mm -hmm. to run various electronics, Vacuum tubes were still very much in use uh, in our North American air defense. That's just a sort of signal and symbol. Of course, all yeah. these things were placed in the meantime of how out of date things could be. And when you get things out of date in a fast moving technological world, as we've now found revealed in the recent statement by a very senior NORAD official, you are at risk because it may mean that you are no longer credibly able to anticipate the approach of enemy aircraft or missiles, and therefore that you can be taken by surprise, and therefore that there can be an advantage to an enemy who wants to opt for a first strike in order to take you completely by surprise, take out all of your defenses, render you back perhaps a few centuries in development, hmm. and uh, there you are. We've had some things brought to our attention in the form of the speech and presentation I mentioned, that included the idea that Russian bombers now of a very high-technology nature are able to get close enough to Canada, North America in general, um, that they could, without really being seen or noticed or sensed, they could release what are known as standoff weapons, standoff missiles, uh, well before... Uh, they uh, they are seen by us, and so again take our defenses by surprise. In the old days, you will all remember from uh, newsreels and movies and so on that uh, during the early part, especially of the Second World War, you had almost exclusively bombs that were dropped from aircraft, and the aircraft had to be more or less over the target in order to hit that target uh, by releasing the bombs. For many years, we've now had, as we all know, missiles, cruise missiles, and other missiles. And some of these types of missiles are able to be released by aircraft when those aircraft are nowhere near the target. And so the aircraft have immense flexibility. They're much, much safer from anti-aircraft uh, uh, responses than aircraft would have been in the old days on offensive operations. 
And uh, as a result, it's desperately important that we keep up so that we can see farther and farther to the horizon and beyond the horizon what is coming at us. Uh, how much of this or this lack of uh, of updating and such has to do with the Cold War uh, cooling off during the 1980s, bring down the wall, all of that uh, d- during that period or after that period? I think most thought that, that we were we were safe up until perhaps recently. Um, did we relax this a little bit? Did we did we not update because we didn't see the threat? Yes, I think that's a, a big part of it. Remember, as you well know, that. Whenever you're dealing with any kind of public policy, including military policy, there's a big element of uh, the democratic reality of our culture and our mentality. And we were tending to be put at ease by announcements, uh, fair enough, in their own way of the victory of the West over the Soviet bloc and the reduced military threat. They seemed at least temporarily to demonstrate. But again, life goes on. The technology now is enhanced. We have remained, if not asleep at the switch, uh, in the hands of politicians who, uh, over the decades, are always delighted to get on to more immediately politically rewarding expenditures. And, you know, whether that's my local ethnocultural dance class or whatever the heck it is Mm. that uh, the government's always happy to fund, um, that's got immediate payback. The military will not tend to. And, and, of course, the absurdity is in that kind of situation, which is demonstrated largely throughout the Western world, the democracies, uh, the, the upshot is it, it may only be in a time of crisis when suddenly you discover, as in the late 1930s, uh, some European nations discovered, that the very survival of their country uh, was at risk mm-hmm. because in those old days, they hadn't kept up. So we saw any number of countries in Europe uh, under the Nazi threat uh, collapsing before it. The countries were actually lost, and had the war not been able to progress uh, in the hands of, I guess, the Anglo-American alliance, those countries would uh, presumably still be flying the Nazi flag, and I guess Britain would have gone under. So there are all kinds of lessons. They seem obvious to us when we sit and think about it, And yet we ourselves, I suppose, as a public, have been happy enough to go along, accept that um, uh, little extra in terms of availability of money and so on that seemed to come to us in the early 90s and so on with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. But in the end, you have to pay the piper, and uh, maybe we're getting a message that that bill is long overdue. What's the U.S. take on this? How How concerned are they? Well, as you know, the um, um, Americans are developing their concerns in a big way. They're dealing with uh, something that we weren't really dealing with uh, until historically, a relatively short while ago, namely a multipolar threat. I mean, if we were consumed with the genuine threat the Soviet Union represented militarily and in some ways politically, in the older days, we weren't by any means as concerned about, say, China and a number of other countries, too. More players now. That's right. That's right. And suddenly, of course, the awakening comes. We have to deal with different nodes of technological development, hyperspeed missiles that we're looking at. I mean, these things going several times the speed of sound. So that you turn around and one of these is, uh, I guess, 
not to exaggerate, coming through your office window, you know, you're in government. So uh, suddenly you've got to be at the top of each of these games or you're at risk of being taken by surprise. And there is uh, further threats. And we're seeing some of this signaled in the uh, Middle East especially. And that gets back to, I guess, the issue of crisis stability. That um, if you've got opposing weapons that are characterized by stealth and breathtaking high speed, your time for decision on the defense side is hugely limited. But also, your level of overall certainty from hour to hour, day to day, year to year, is highly constricted. So you, or one side or the other, may be inclined to panic suddenly. You get a a bad bit of intelligence. We almost had a major nuclear exchange around 1983 between uh, the Soviet Union and the United States that's still not fully understood when uh, Soviet censors were in error. I can't remember whether it was because of uh, weather conditions or a flock of birds. Uh, sounds mm-hmm. exaggerated, but that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Soviet... Well, command... we've just seen what happened with uh, Iran and a Ukraine airliner, so mistakes it, happen. That, exactly, yeah. exactly. So it requires a considerable amount of forethought and humility to be aware of some of the pathologies that can work their way into even the best of systems. Um, uh, Many have said that wars are not fought this way anymore. Uh, More attention spent or should be spent on cyber warfare. Uh, How do you balance this? Well, it, it is, as you say, a balance. It's a combination of things. Uh, we can't go all in one direction to the exclusion of others, because uh, just to take the military as an example, if you let off, let up on the uh, defensive side of cyber in the military context, then you're going to have your systems penetrated, and your conventional and nuclear military forces may be of absolutely no use to you, and at a minimum, therefore, your deterrent credibility evaporates. And you are, in effect, in that way, actually emboldening a potential enemy to move against you. You may even, strangely enough, be creating enemies in the sense that there may be third powers, if we can refer to it in those terms, uh, countries that of modest power themselves and influence might be looking at uh, to whom, that is, to which countries they might want to a lie. Hmm. And if we have limited military credibility, they may, even if they are not particularly keen on the idea, figure that, well, maybe China's a better bet. Uh, we, we've already had questions about this kind of thing in relation to the management by the uh, rather brutal Philippine government of their foreign relations. They're in the vicinity of China. They traditionally, of course, have been profoundly attached to the U.S. One hopes that will remain. But as they see a more muscular China moving mm. into their territory and uh, U.S. military capability reducing, uh, you can see the, uh, the uh, survival impulse and maybe a few others that might induce, uh, not absolutely, but might induce the Philippines to uh, at least appease the uh, Chinese uh, mobilization more than confront it. David Harris is with us uh, in Cigna Strategic Group. David, I can't let you go without asking you your opinion of the announcement Boris Johnson made earlier this week in regard to the U.K. opening the door for Huawei's 5G. Your thoughts? 
Former United States Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, has described this event as a, quote, strategic defeat, unquote, for the United Kingdom, and I guess, therefore, for the Boris Johnson government in one of its first major initiatives post-recent election. I think that's a, probably a reasonable characterization, because although the people who would support the Johnson initiative of allowing Huawei to get involved in the so-called periphery in the UK of 5G activity, the 5G internet infrastructure, uh, although you know they've allowed that peripheral involvement, they claim, the Johnson people, that they have uh, nonetheless kept Huawei out of the so-called core part of the developing mm-hmm. 5G network. The difficulty is, I think many people more confident than I am in this field have pointed out, is that given the pace of te- technology, the uh, capacity of China, which seems to be intimately implicated in uh, things Huawei, it means that the boundary between what may be claimed to be peripheral on the one hand and the so-called core on the other will be melting. And to that extent, you then ultimately would confront a situation of the most hideous uh, proportions. I mean, world historical proportions. So, how where, do you think? How do you think the UK is going to react to this? Do you think there'll be blowback? I mean, is this a go? It, it's hard to imagine that there there might not be blowback. It, at the very least, would imply developing and growing inefficiencies between U.S., especially official and particularly military communications, on the one hand, and uh, the U.K. equivalent on the other, as the Americans become more and more uneasy about the implications, if not immediate, then longer term. So the issue of compromising entire systems and finding that uh, the Chinese Politburo has a captured seat on policy, uh, technical military affairs, and all the rest in its opposing countries like the U.S. and U.K. is something really the world has never seen before and that does appear to be looming. But yet I'll have academics on, David, that will say uh, that, you know, uh, you listen to Huawei presidents and none of this has ever been done in the past, that, you know, uh, even though the communist government of China says it has control over all companies within the con- in the country, that's not happening. And yet nobody seems to think, well, if they'll detain the two Michaels, why wouldn't they <laughs> throttle 5G? That, that's right. It, uh, it it never ceases to amaze me. Uh, I remember over many years teaching, I guess at the graduate level, a course on national security and intelligence, uh, having periodically to review how credible some of the West's code word and coding systems, uh, encipherment systems were. And this goes back some years. So this is uh, almost ancient history. And uh, you know, it was remarkable to see in those old days of relatively slow developing technology that coding systems that, you know, we were all assured confidently would be good for 40 years before an adversary could break them and therefore have mastery of everything we were doing and thinking back in that earlier period. Well, you know, suddenly you turn around and, well, maybe now they're only good for 10 years or five years. Or mm. what, and, you know, that was significant in those days because that was a life and death issue for many people and their sources who may have been traceable through the breaking of codes. What happens now when you look at stakes that involve 
literally dominance of the ways and means that people communicate, that people think, that they understand and know the world. We've already seen some of the you know, really powerful uh, uses mm. to which disinformation has been put. And the, Soviet, the Soviets and Russians, of course, have been masters of disinformation long ago. And now we're seeing the accelerating threat represented by this kind of yes. phenomenon in and the, with, with the uh, facilitation of uh, modern technology, social media, and so on. Mm. What on earth could we be looking at if China or Russia or Venezuela, for that matter, really gets into some of the major games? We've just seen a possible example of this, indeed, in relation to claims by the Taliban. I think that they may have shot down uh, an aircraft uh, recently that contained a leading CIA official, uh, who may have been, according to those reports, implicated in the killing of the Iranian Al-Quds oh, Force General wow. Soleimani. You remember that triggered the yeah. latest crisis. Um, David, I'm going to cut you off there. We are plumb out of time. Uh, we'll continue this uh, again. David Harris with his Insignis Strategic Group. He is a security and terrorism expert. David, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, thanks, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.